Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and I'm your host, Mary Swander. Today we're heading southeast from Free Martintown, just a couple of miles from the Mississippi River, to Red Fern Farm with Kathy Dice and Tom Wall, visionaries who have turned a conventional row crop farm into a nut and fruit paradise. Corn is not the answer, reads a plaque in their roadside market shed. And in this episode, we'll find out what answers Red Fern Farm has found in their quest to enhance their land stewardship. The Red Fern Farm is part of a project called Writing the Land. And it's a national project where uh, land trusts are matched with poets. What a novel idea. And then the poets go to these farms that are going to be in trust or are in trust, and we will write poems about the farms. I think it's the coolest thing, and I am matched with Red Fern Farm. Tom, why don't you tell us about what it means to be a land trust, and you are in part of SILT, which is Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, and how your farm is going to configure into that trust in the future. Well, we have a an easement with the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust to protect our farm uh, from development or uh, protect it from being used for anything other than uh, what pretty much what we're doing with it now, which is growing crops on trees. So it will uh, ensure that once we're gone, Somebody doesn't come and bulldoze out the trees and plant corn and beans on it or uh, or build houses on it or a theme park or or anything else. That's right. And then in these days of consolidation of farmland, that this is really significant. For our listeners, Kathy, can you tell them how an easement, what their technicalities of an easement are? An easy way to think of it is with every piece of land or property, there's a bundle of rights that comes with it. And an easement often means you're giving up or selling one of those rights. It might be an easement to like allow a power line to go through or to have somebody allowed to travel on there. Or you might sell the easement that someone can come and mine your land for coal or mineral deposits. And in our case, our easement gave up some of the ways, the rights for how it could be farmed. And our easement very specifically says no annual crops. In fact, except up to only one quarter of an acre of annual crops. It got this sustainable Iowa land trust kind of like, what? what that, 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 that's pretty extreme. We're like, yeah. Yep, that's how we are. We're extremists. We are. <laughs> so for our listeners, an annual crop would be a crop that you have to plant every year. So those would encompass everything from corn and beans all the way to uh, tomatoes and um, eggplant. And so you are truly thinking perennials. So that could be um, trees, shrubs. Um, vegetables like asparagus, um, um, wildflowers like echinacea, things like what else? Prairies, and vines. We've got uh, rhubarb, horseradish, skirret, right. <clears throat> uh, and 
a, pro, a, cup, a couple dozen <clears throat> perennial vegetables, but mostly trees, shrubs, and vines. And the easement <clears throat> doesn't say that it has to that the farm has to stay the way it is right now because they thought we wanted to protect the trees we have. And it's like, no, no, we always wanted to be in some kind of perennials, but 50 to 200 years from now, chestnuts may not be the best thing to be growing on this land. It's okay to change as long as it's a perennial. That's great. So you're flexible um in terms of the perennials, and you're thinking about, you know, climate change. You're factoring in climate change into your into your plan. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to envision, you know, the future for a piece of land because you have to envision yourself not on it, right? And think about all those things we don't like to think about. So you've done a great job of um, farmland transitioning planning. Well, we've always been well aware of the history of our land since the last glacier pooled away from this part of Iowa. And the peoples who have transversed through it, handling when it was like a pine forest and when it transitioned to really, really dry prairie. And then back when it's become what it is more now, which is a mosaic of wetlands and prairies and forested areas. So over the millennia, our <laughs> land has been changing. Has changed, yeah. Do you know anything about the history of the natives on your land? Oh, yes. Well, if originally it would have been the paleo, alt, the paleo people who would have been here about <coughs> 10,000 to 8,000 years ago. Ma mammoth hunters. Yeah, and they use, oh man, the, the craftsmanship of the points that they created is amazing. And then those kind of merged into the archaic people. And I think some of the knowledge may have been lost, but it was a harder time to live in Iowa. That's when there was droughts and it was prairie and it was really struggling to get by. And then you got like about 2,000 years ago, when the mound builders were in our area. And from them, we also had the Onioto people. And those are our words for the people. We don't know the languages of the people who spoke. But a thousand years ago, it was like the precursors of the Bakoje people. It, we call them the Onioto. And then from there, we get the into Iowa. that we get into the Bakoje or the Iowa people. And they kind of shared maybe not happily the land with the Meskwaki and the Sack and the Fox. Mm -hmm. And at different times we had whole chunk coming down and Sioux. So it's been kind of complex. Yeah. You're in a region that had a lot of overlapping tribes and lots of activity going around because you're very close to the Mississippi River. Yeah. We even in this yeah, county had Black Hawk having his council with Keokuk before right. the Black Hawk right. Wall. Right, exactly. Oh, that's that's just fascinating that you know the history. I wish everybody could do that deep dive into the history of their land. <laughs> what does what does that do for you when you have that context? Well, one thing would be I like to bring up that we have many varieties of pawpaw that have been created on our farm, and because they're genetically unique, we get to name the variety. Kind of like, you know, there's um, golden delicious apples and red delicious apples. So Tom started creating names for the new pawpaw varieties. And he he considered them superstars. So he was naming them. Um, uh, Regulus, Rigel, <clears throat> uh, Atria, Betria, Gatria. 
after the stars. But I was like, no, no, you need to get some Bakoji words in there. And so we had a big discussion because I was trying to come up with some from the Bakoji language for like good one, good two, good three. But I, I couldn't make them simple enough to speak. Do you have any other rem- remnants of, um, you know, your native um uh, former inhabitants there, the the arrowheads. Do you have mounds in in any vicinity? In, on our in farm, no. In our county, yes. yes. The main uh-huh. thing we find on our ground are points from like the archaic times. Although, and so, <clears throat> although I did find <clears throat> one from uh, paleo time. Yeah. Wow. wow! Wow! Oh, that's just that's just terrific. And you've really reinvented agriculture you're doing and what they call agroforestry that's a mouthful but um you know i've been to your farm a couple times for field days and then i i brought all my seedlings for my shrubs and uh trees from you so you have a nursery you have a lot going on there and but i'm interested in why you developed this piece of land the way you did I, I, what I understand was you're trying to address some of the conservation problems that um, our agriculture, today's agriculture, creates. So what what are you doing that's addressing those problems, and what are those problems? Well, I like to say Tom and I were trained as wildlife biologists. That was our start. And we in, when we went to the university, the way we saw conventional agriculture was just horrendous, all the corn and soybeans and the damage it was doing to the habitat of wildlife, to the environment. And if we could have, we would have rolled back the clock 150, 200 years ago to the way farms used to be raised, but that wasn't possible. We bought this land so we would have a little bit of wilderness. And then Tom started to learn about holistic resource management. Mm-hmm. And he, we read Tree Crops by J. Russell Smith. And we decided to <clears throat> start a farm that would uh, uh, solve or, or el- eliminate all the problems that are caused by modern industrial agriculture, May, uh, especially soil erosion, mm-hmm. uh, but, but also uh, uh, loss of habitat for other living things. The use of chemical pesticides and chemical fertilizers. And uh, a heavy dependence on fossil fuels and the, and the equipment that runs on them. We wanted uh, to be a shining example of what was possible. Yeah, we wanted to prove that it was possible to make a good living <clears throat> on a small piece of land uh, without the soil erosion and habitat loss and yeah, explain for the listeners how uh, conventional agriculture creates soil soil la- loss. I, I, you know, I know, you know, but sometimes it's it's hazy or fuzzy in the other people's minds. With modern industrial agriculture, <clears throat> the soil is bare most of the year, um, <clears throat> like nine months out of the year. So when it rains. Uh, the soil's uncovered, so that there's nothing to protect it. So when rain, raindrops hit it, uh, they cause splash and uh, dislodge soil particles on the surface, which uh, <clears throat> turn into 
muddy water, which flows off the surface into streams and rivers and eventually down to the Gulf of Mexico. And it amounts to an awful lot. Uh, in our county, the last uh, statistics I saw said that on average we were losing around 10 tons mm. of soil from every acre every year that's being farmed in corn and beans. That would be that would be a, a dump truck load off of every acre, driving away and never coming back. Uh, part, every acre every year. Part of our own land that we purchased, we could see that when we were building a dam, when the ground the topsoil was scraped on the sloping areas, it it was like half an inch thick. It was just the most recent. Um, decomposing organic material, just the beginning of a new topsoil. But down at the bottom of that slope, the where the soil had piled up, it was like four feet deep. And it was just amazing to see how much had washed down the fields in just that small area over the decades that it had been farmed. Right. So in contrast with your uh, perennials, with the trees, the shrubs, and the other perennials, the uh, uh, wildflowers and prairie. How does that hold the soil in place? Well, we do have a little bit of bare soil right after we plant a new tree. <laughs> I will have a like a three-foot circle around the base of the tree that's kept free of vegetation. But that's just for a few years. And then once that tree is well-established, um, the ground is continuously covered year-round by living perennial plants, uh, a, a wide diversity of living perennial plants that include grasses, uh, legumes, uh, forbs in the uh, aster family make up a, a large percentage of them, but, but dozens of other families of plants covering the soil all the time. So now when a raindrop falls, instead of hitting bare soil and turning it into mud, uh, it lands on vegetation, which slowly brings it down to the soil and then lets it infiltrate under the soil surface and go down uh, to be soaked up by the soil rather than running off with soil particles. And for anybody that's grown anything like lettuce, you know, you know how shallow the root system is compared to if you've had to clean up a tree from the duratio like an oak tree and you know how massive the root system is. So those roots are they're holding in the soil. And in addition, you have no um, plowing, and which, which releases greenhouse gases. And so, so you, you're not adding to our problem with um, greenhouse gases in the air and the whole situation we're in now. On the contrary, our, our farm is covered by special devices <coughs> that... Uh, whose main function is to take greenhouse gases out of the air and convert them into products that are useful for humans, including high-quality food, life-saving medicine, uh, building materials. He's talking fuel. about trees. <laughs> and, and they run entirely on solar power. They're maintenance-free. That's great. Okay, let's, let's talk about your trees. I know you have a multi-storied... Uh, system and anybody can find an aerial picture of your farm, which is really fun to see. So tell us what are in those multi-stories and how they function. 
Well, we have the big trees that include chestnuts, heart nuts, <clears throat> uh, pecans, mainly, uh, well, some, some black walnuts. And then uh, we have smaller trees that will be, well, some of them will be underneath the large trees, uh, like uh, persimmon and pawpaw, and then uh, shrubs that include goose, gooseberries, currants, high bush cranberry, yeah, cornelian cherry, some hazels, uh, spice bush. Then we have a, a ground layer. That's where our perennial vegetables are, and and also uh, just the uh, forage in between the tree rows, which we graze with sheep. Yeah, no, I don't remember sheep on your place. That's great. You have some. So now you've integrated livestock into the into the plan. And, and that's because our son has decided to get involved in the farm. We used to have sh uh, goats, but um, they didn't they didn't work out. <laughs> we tried for 25 years to integrate goats and sheep or goats with trees. And uh, we had to give up. Oh, goats are great, but they love to eat trees. I know that. Well, you know, the question that a lot of people ask is, okay, this is great. There's, you know, agroforestry. There are all these trees and bushes and things, but can you make a living? Can you have an income, a farm income? Tell us about the possibilities there. In an ideal world where the rainfalls come just perfectly every year and there aren't any droughts and there aren't any floods, we could plant chestnut trees, for example, and within three to four years start getting nuts from them. And some somewhere around year six, seven, or eight, we would start getting a serious commercial harvest from them in, in hundreds of pounds per acre. Um, that didn't happen for us. 2,000 pounds per acre by year 12 and uh, 5,000 pounds per acre by year 20. Uh, but uh, <coughs> we, we started farming just at the beginning of an eight-year drought. And uh, and we didn't have tree shelters that would protect oh. our trees from okay. the deer. What are tree shelters? Tree shelters are translucent <coughs> uh, plastic tubes that are uh, have a, just the right coloration to maximize the the correct wavelengths of light for maximizing tree growth, and uh, they protect the trees from animals like deer and rabbits. Uh, make them grow faster and make them start producing fruit or nuts years earlier than they would with just a cage for protection from but the But they animals. have to be They're... five feet tall. And that was the big stumbling block. Yeah. Uh, in Colorado, they might have to be six feet tall to protect from elk also. But uh, we don't have that problem here. So, But, but they have to be all of five feet and uh, a four-foot shelter is useless. And that's what we had at the beginning. And the deer were like, well, thank you for growing these for us. That's just wonderful. <laughs> year after year, just cutting off the tops. Oh, that's that's the tough one. All right, so your trees are mature now. And um, how do, what do you do with your crop? How do you create, you know, a market? What's happening there? We are, are doing UPIC. And that started because Tom was running a co-op where he would gather all the chestnuts grown by other farmers in the region. He would sort them by size, bag them up, and then sell them to customers. And so he had this great customer list and 
a whole lot of customers who were used to coming to our farm to get chestnuts. And now I'll tell, let him tell the story. Mm. So we had uh, one customer, a Bosnian family, uh, that begged me to let them come and pick their own nuts. Um, and I, I didn't want to do that because I was afraid of liability and afraid our insurance wouldn't cover it if something happened. Uh, but uh, the dad was dying of cancer and he wanted to pick chestnuts the way he did in the old country one more time. Wow. I, I couldn't say no, <laughs> so I told him, okay, but don't tell anybody. And they came and picked, and three days later, we had a list of 20-some Bosnians <laughs> who wanted to come and pick. <laughs> uh, a year later, it was 70-some, and now it's 380-some. Yeah, yeah. And, and people who are immigrants from other countries, it might be Vietnam and Bosnia, they have a tradition of going out and gathering their own chestnuts. And we let them do it on our farm, and it's nice mowed grass. We give them buckets and tools. We make it easy to do. It's like, this is this is nice. And I still remember the elderly man who was from Vietnam, and uh, I was showing him where some chestnuts were had fallen under a tree, and his face just like lit up. His big smile. He was picking the chestnuts and he was cradling them in his arms. And like, let me get you a bucket. Let me. Oh, this is great. This is. And he just looked so happy. I was like, oh yeah. This, you know, the money's great, but this, this, that part felt really great too. This is beneficial bo both sides of the bargain here. Customers are very happy to come and pick their own. Yes. And we have Anglo customers, customers who are uh, several generations in this country who have absolutely no idea what to do with a chestnut. They'll come and get like five pounds, maybe 10 pounds if they're feeling really adventuresome. We're like, yeah, thank you for coming. But we really love our immigrant customers because they will get 25 to two pounds to 200 to 300 pounds at to, a time. Or 400 or 500 yeah. or, or 800. Yeah. Well, chestnuts are high protein and low fat is the way I understand. Well, they they're, have a moderate level of protein, and they're so low in fat that nutritionists consider them fat-free. It's a very high-quality protein. It's about as good as the protein <clears throat> you find in an egg. And when I was there for a field day, you were making them into flour and all sorts of cool things. What else? What do you do with chestnuts besides roast them at Christmas time. You can do anything with a chestnut that you can do with a fruit, a vegetable, or a grain. It's like, think of a potato. Yeah. How many ways would you cook a potato, you know? Right. Or corn. It's like, what do you do with corn? Oh my gosh, so many things. It's, oh, there's just... But they're never treated like a nut <laughs> yeah. in, in cooking. Yeah. I don't put them in brownies. <laughs> I use a flour to make brownies, but... That's great. And and another interesting thing that you grow there are pawpaws, and, um, which are, is a real total delicacy. Tell us about your pawpaw patch. Well, it's more mm -hmm. than just a patch now. <laughs> I've, we've, got, we've got around 800 to 900 trees planted. Um, oh. um, but it's, it's a native tree, native to Iowa, native to our county. And it can produce fruit up to about the size of a large grapefruit. And the fruit has a custard or pudding-like texture. 
And most people describe the flavor as a cross between banana and mango. And I think that's a pretty good description. And oh, yum. they're, yum. they're yeah. really popular and their popularity seems to be uh, increasing <laughs> very fast. Um, even, even though our, our production is going up fast, the, the popularity of them is going up faster. And it's a big fruit. It's like the size of a potato. Yeah, yeah. One pawpaw is usually like half a pound, and we get some that are one to even two pounds. That's a big mama pawpaw, but yeah, it's it's a significant piece of fruit. When I used to talk to my elders, they all grew pawpaws, and um, did they go out of fashion just because of the consolidation of farmland and the, you know, the monocropping or, you know, there used to be more truck farms than there are now. I think it's more of a matter of urbanization. But oddly enough, even people who are raised on farms, well, I'll I'll tell this short story. Uh, There was a a man in South Carolina who wanted, had always heard about pawpaws and wanted to try them all his life, but he'd never seen one. And And he never lived anywhere except on that farm where he was born. And when he turned 60, he ordered some pawpaws from a nursery. And when they arrived in the box, he opened the box on his porch and saw that the trees were all leafed out. And he said, wait a minute. And he stepped off his porch, walked 50 feet, and there were pawpaws that had been on his farm all his life. And he didn't know what they were. Uh, So I find that people who, who grow up among billions of pawpaw trees have never heard of them. So they're a total hidden gem, and it's something that everybody could have in their yard if they wanted to. Correct? Yeah. But oh, yeah. But there's something about the name pawpaw that um, people find intriguing, and even if they haven't the faintest idea what it is, they want to experience them. Yeah. So we have lots of people who drive hundreds of miles to our farm uh, to experience pawpaws without the faintest idea of what to expect. So how's it work? You charge $15 to get into the farm, and then what? Well, and then what happens? And then that $15 is goes towards whatever they buy while they're on the farm. But if they don't want to buy anything, they're all good. And if they want to just pick a rona berry, they're all good. But we will generally ask them when we schedule them, uh, so are you wanting to get pawpaws, persimmons, Asian pears? And how many pounds are you wanting? And what they tell us helps us plan we're on our farm, we will send them. And we'll give them often their own grove of trees to harvest pawpaws from and chestnuts from. And then we'll tell them, and when you're done here, we're going to go over to this area and we'll show them the trees and say, this is where you get your Asian pears too. So they can spend as much time as they want, go as slow as they want, and they have a good time. And when they're all done, we weigh out their fruit. And if they paid the 15 bucks already, it 15 is already paid for, but usually later in the year, we just have people pay 15 bucks at the very end if they didn't get much fruit. So it's 15 bucks and then so much a pound for what they're harvesting? Is that how it works? But the first $15 worth is paid for by their entry fee. Yeah. The entry fee does is ensure that uh, somebody doesn't come and take up uh, (laughs) several hours of our time and then 
get two papas or and we've had, five dollars worth. We've had that. How we spent three ah. hours with a group, and then they only got two uh, two dollars worth of stuff. That inspired the minimum thing. <laughs> yeah, this is why I love you because you've been there long enough to have figured out all the angles. You're so experienced. You know how to not only raise and grow the trees and the shrubs, but you know how to manage the people that come to your farm. All right, folks. So come on down to Red Firm Farm. Keep your hands and feet out of the traps. <laughs> Bring your bags and baskets and get some. But, but call ahead because it's only by appointment. Oh, yeah. Call ahead by, by appointment. And it seems like you've got a lot of customers, so you have to, you know, get that appointment and get on down, get those chestnuts. That's just wonderful. Thank you so much, Kathy and Tom. I've always admired your vision and your know-how in terms of, of how you farm and how you show the rest of the world what can be done. It's a good thing to do. concludes our episode for today. Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land was produced by Rick Brewer of Brewhaha Audio Productions. We had support from the Werner Ellathorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund, who also supports our farm to artist residencies. We would welcome your support Simply go to our website, agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot org, and hit that red donate button. Thank you for your help, and we'll see you next time.